0: You're listening to the Detroit Worldwide Podcast. We highlight the stories of native Detroiters that are doing great things in their community and using their impact across the globe. I'm Marquise Taylor. Welcome to the D. What up, though? Welcome to another installment of the Detroit Worldwide Podcast. I am Marquise Taylor, and on this week's edition of the podcast, we enter new territory. Joining us on the podcast this week was a playwright, an actress, an artist, and a writer who we had on the podcast this week was the one and only Domonique Moriso, who is doing some amazing work in the area of theater, and arts, and also in the world of Broadway. Speaking of which, please support her work on Broadway as you're able to, and the name of that work is titled Ain't Too Proud, which is based on the Temptation song and features the life story of the legendary Temptations. Please check that out, support that again, as you're able to, it is on Broadway, it is NYC. So if you're listening and you're NYC, check out that work. Again, this young lady is doing some amazing work. She is a Detroit ambassador. She is bridging the gap of history. And serving as a liaison for some of these time periods so that people can be aware of those things. And she is also a person who's very accessible. I enjoyed our conversation very much. I admire this young lady very much. And I am proud of this interview and I am proud of the work that this young lady is doing homegirl's resume is long but she's also very humble about it as well so you have heard enough from me why don't we tune in to that discussion that i had with the one and only domonique mariso all right this is detroit worldwide and for another week we are making history joining us on the podcast today is someone that I say affirms the city in a way that is positive, in a way that is authentic through their works. Who we have on the podcast today is playwright, writer, actress, Dominique Moriso. Did I say it right? You said
1: it. Right, we got it. <laughs> yes,
0: yes. Thank you so much for joining us on the trade worldwide. I'm Marquise. Again, I have to make sure I get people's pronunciations right for their names. But appreciate it. <laughs> I was wondering if you can begin by telling our listeners just who you are and the work that you're currently doing.
1: Well, I mean, i so I'm a playwright, I'm a television writer and a screenwriter. And so I write for the stage the theater, the stage, the television, and the screen. And I'm also an actress, you know, so I I act in all those mediums. I tell a lot of stories about Detroit. I'm not only exclusively a Detroit writer, but I come from the city. I have an award-winning play cycle that's about the city of Detroit with three plays that are about different time periods in Detroit. And they've been produced all over the world. Several of them are up right now in different cities in the country. One of my plays is in Atlanta right now, another in Cleveland. I have three in Cleveland. One is currently playing in Detroit, and I have one on Broadway in New York. So the work gets around, and I'm I'm happy to be telling stories about all things, but also large part stories about Detroit.
0: For sure. And you also have one in Minnesota that we'll be talking about in a little bit. And one of the things that I appreciate and love about what you're doing is that you highlight the city in a way that's authentic. In fact, I want to actually pivot to the next question, and I want to ask you, what was your experience like growing up in Detroit?
1: I always say my experience in Detroit, like so many of our experiences, I mean, it's layered, you know, it's it's beautiful, it's complex, it's messy, it's all those things, but growing up in a predominantly Black city, I think at one point the Blackest city in the country I think that, you know, I mean, just demographically, like, just in terms of, like, ratio, right? Like, there might be other cities with higher Black population, but they're also bigger cities. So the ratio of Black to, you know, other people, you know, other people of other cultures, it's more, the ratio of Black is not as high as Detroit. Detroit was, like, 90-something percent Black when I was growing up. And that also meant that that's a unique experience because the people that ran every part of the city looked just like me. I mean, every part of the city. My teachers you know the principals the the lawyers the doctors the judges the police force like everybody looked like me and so there wasn't that one thing I didn't think I could be growing up because I saw myself reflected in every area of leadership in our city and I think that that had an effect on a lot of people in Detroit now there's other things that took its toll in the city that I think who are a tug of war with like any black city or like any cities, really, and especially urban cities, there's, you know, other epidemics and, you know, like, you know, other crises, like the crack epidemic that hit, kind of like the opioid crisis we're seeing right now, that took play, effect everywhere, and it took effect in Detroit. But there's something special, I think, about the, the working class city that Detroit is, the way that people built it up, and I always say we're the city that got the rest of the world literally removed the rest of the country because we are building their cars, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, the, we keep the nation running you know so i think that there's just something special about that what we capture in our hometown that is like no other place
0: you know what i love about that response and just hearing you articulate the beauty of detroit is seeing the beautiful black representation because detroit I say this often, and I'm pretty sure you can probably speak to this more so than I can, that it is not only the pulse of Black America, but it's also the pulse of America itself. And I love that you were able to reflect back on some of the people that you saw coming up, judges, teachers, things like that. And if I'm not mistaken, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you are a graduate of Bates Academy? I am. For sure, for sure.
1: I went to Bates, I went to Cast Tech, and I went to University of Michigan.
0: Okay, so the running joke on this podcast <laughs> is that we've had a lot of people on here from Cass Technical High School.
1: Of course, of course. I'm not surprised, but go ahead. What's the joke? What
0: is the joke? I mean, the joke is that so much so that this podcast should be called Cash Tech Worldwide as opposed to Detroit Worldwide. But I have a lot of love for Cash Technical High School. I myself went to Redford High School, so at least your school it's still around. <laughs> I,
1: hear you. I hear, you know, you're, you're like vintage, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> go refer. her. Like, nobody can duplicate that. You know, I'm different in that, yes, I went to Cass, I went to, like, the, the, the magnet schools, and the schools you had to test to get into, and all those kind of things, you know? I grew up on the west side of Detroit, in, like, the Livernois six-mile area, and the, the kids in my neighborhood did not go to my school, and so I sort of had the experience of somebody who's leaving the neighborhood and coming back to it you know because we went to uh, when I was at Bates it was on the east side of Detroit Cass was downtown you know I never went to school in my neighborhood and I learned how that makes other people in your block feel you know and I think there's something I like I love my schools they're public schools in Detroit that are amazing schools so I love the schools I went to I wish that the education experience was a little more balanced
0: around the city I love that area over there because actually on a personal level, the Livermore Six Mile area, my uh, family owned a record store not too far from there for many years. My dad owned his record store over there as well. So that uh, area is very personal to me. What was Um, the name of it? Records For You.
1: I know Records For You. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, that's crazy.
0: And my father's record store was Detroit Audio um oh, wow. so that whole area has a lot of history for my family um and it's a really nice area the U of D university district yeah. area they have some really nice restaurants The U of D Coney is still popping so that's the
1: Coney <laughs> yes the Coney I mean those are some of my favorite Coney's Coney's around my neighborhood yeah that's that yeah you, you got legend um you got Detroit legend on you because that's those, those buildings and those, like, especially record shops, come on, like, that's like a dying breed Like, that's sort of, like, that's history that's never gonna be able to be duplicated, you know? That's amazing.
0: For sure, for sure. Now, I am curious to know and thinking about your background, or rather hearing about your background, you went to Bates Academy and also uh, Cash Technical High School. How did growing up in Detroit influence you to pursue the arts as both a career and also, as a major in college?
1: Well, so when I was at Cass, I didn't actually know you could study, you know, theater in college. I, I thought I was gonna have to go and study, you know, have like that backup plan and, you know, become some other kind of, you know, I thought I was gonna be like a child psychologist. So I have to get some degree in something, you know, a little more science based or something like that. And um, when I went to CAS, we had a professor, a tip professor. Well, she was like a professor, she was a teacher there. Her name was Marilyn McCormick. And, you know, she birthed so many of us young artists in the city, I mean, she really got, there's so many cast babies that are in theater and the performing arts that came out of her nurturing. So much so that she won a Tony Award a couple of years ago for her work in theater and education, you know? But she's the one that sorta got our heads around the fact that we could go to schools for theater. And I would have never gone to UM's theater department if I hadn't been under Ms. McCormick's mentorship. So that's sort of one way that I got prepared for the arts. But frankly, I mean, my mother is a teacher. She's a teacher in Highland Park for over 40 years before she retired. And my mama used to just always take me to see anything, any shows that came to town. I used to go see plays when I was a kid, plays at Wayne State plays that came in to the to the music hall. I, I remember my, my first play I ever saw was The Wiz, and my mother took me to see that in Detroit, you know? And so I used to go see stuff at the Fox when it came in on tour. So I used to see shows in Detroit a lot, which is the reason why I'm, I'm working with a theater company here right now and helping to build up the local theaters that exist here or that are starting to exist here because I want to make sure that the art is vibrant here in Detroit for, for the next generation, you know? But yeah, I mean, I always had that influence, And my aunt, my aunt, her name is Carol Moriso. She had a dance company called Detroit Dance Center when I was growing up. And so I grew up dancing with my aunt. So I've always been exposed to the arts and it kind of runs through my family. So, yeah, that Detroit artist gene is strong, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, just hearing your response and thank you for sharing, it sounds like the community at large, in particular, your family had an influence on you wanting to pursue those things. And I I know those theaters because having been a student at Wayne State and having to go there for a few plays and I I know how big the art scene is. But again, the community at large, in particular, family seemed like they had a great influence, but not just that Detroit as a whole. Now, transitioning to your collegiate career at the university of michigan and please correct me if i'm wrong you earned a degree in theater or fine arts or something like that please correct uh, me
1: in theater performance so i earned a bachelor of fine arts in theater performance Okay, so basically a, a degree in acting and performing
0: so going off of that when you were a student at the university of michigan what did community and support look like for you as an undergraduate student?
1: Well, you know, when I was at Michigan, I was like in um, 99, we had this big protest in 99, cause that was around the time when like racial profiling had just become like a term, you know, affirmative action was in full effect, and it was getting threatened to be revoked. It eventually did get revoked. We were at school at the time when they were trying to take it away, and uh, and a lot of you know a lot of black folks at Michigan, a big chunk of us were from Detroit. And so when I was at Michigan, it was a, it was an amazing time because we were so politically active on campus and like the black students like we just did all this stuff to like find like our unity with each other that to this day I'm still close to my Michigan crew like it's it's Teflon right now like you (laughs) can't you know and and we because we can't we all have so much pride and those of us that are from Detroit, which most of us are, and those that weren't from Detroit have moved to Detroit. <laughs> mm. They are getting roasted for and I talked talk massive about Detroit. But it was one of those situations where when we were at a predominantly white institution and we during the years that we were there, our school got vote, voted the best environment for black students at a white university because we made it that way you know and so we were just it was really amazing to be so connected to everybody we kind of built these like i said these long lasting friendships partnerships you know we we invest in each other's ideas to this day you know I, i'm an artist but i call on my like you know i literally call i just called on my michigan friends recently because i was locked out of my instagram account and instagram is like the mafia like you just can't get in you know what i mean like there's no way to talk anybody or talk to anybody like If it can't be solved on like the the 10 point program they have listed on their website, like you're done. There's no one you can talk to. And, um, And I had to try to call my friends of like, who do you know, who do we know? Come on, come on, you know, come on network, who do we know? That works there that can get me back into my account, and um, so it's it's stuff like that that I'm like. I just I always need my Michigan connection for everything because I just they're they're doing big things in the world. They know all the big bosses, even if I don't, you know. They do. They're working in engineering, or they're working in, you know, they're doctors, or they're working in whatever and they're, they're working in real estate. They're the, the movers and shakers, and many of them are from our city, and many of them are moving back to our city to invest and to build up Detroit. So I find that connection powerful. It doesn't mean that, now when I was in the theater department, That was straight up. I was like the only one of like two or three black women or black students in the department when I first got there. And through my time there, one of very few black students in the program overall. And that was frustrating. I just, that was my first time. Michigan was also the first place I ever experience institutional racism. Hmm. I didn't even know what it was before I got to Michigan. I, I, I was never no minority before I got to Michigan. You know, the, mm-hmm. if you was white in Detroit, you was the one that was poor. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> <laughs> nah, you know. So I, my white friends in Detroit, you know, they live southeast Michigan, you know, and it would be like That's tough, That's tough. So, or, or you know, or they live southwest Detroit, and it'd be it's tough. It's tough areas, you know, and. I I never knew what it felt like to not to like be the only one or one of the few. I was one of the many, you know. So it's a real different headspace being in Michigan to go from being like a majority to the minority, and that was I experienced so much institutional racism within the theater department that that's actually what made me turn from being just an actress to being a writer. I wasn't getting cast in the shows at my school. And I was like, this isn't gonna work. Like I'm, you know, I'm going into debt over this education. I'm not getting to work, you know? So I want to do my own show. And I wrote a show for myself and the other two black girls in the department at the time. And it just, it sort of became legendary at the school because it was the first show that was the first black produced show in our student run theater that had a majority of non-theater department students showing up and coming to see the work and coming back. And the black student body, I feel like made me irreversibly a playwright. Mm.
0: So much to unpack there. I want to focus on some of the positives in the sense that one, have you taken a moment to, as you're recalling this, like pat yourself on the back and realizing that you made history? Have you thought about what that looked like?
1: Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, not in the moment, obviously. I don't think people, you don't know you're making history when you're making history. You just move, you know? You look back and go, oh man, that was the first time that ever happened. I will say that when I was in college, I learned something about myself that I needed to be reminded of later in life. Like, I, you know, I didn't realize, like, I was really tenacious and I just, I did know that I was having, like, the first black student production that had ever been at the school in my time there. So I used that to get all other black students to come see the show. I was like, yo, this is the first black show. Everybody needs to come. You know, I went around campus, you know, campaigning for people to come see the show and promoting the work before I had even finished writing it, you know? So I was back confident. And, you know, you grow up and you kind of lose some of that confidence because, like, life gets real then you get a little humbled by life and you realize like oh man like <laughs> everything that you do is my language but your shit does sink and you know not everybody is gonna be on board and wants to see you win and I just had no idea of that when I was you know growing up I thought we're all here you know that, of course people want to see you win like why wouldn't they you know so I had to I learned that was back when I didn't know the word no you know I didn't even believe nobody could tell me no I didn't even I didn't conceive of it so I didn't I didn't limit myself from that idea, you know? When I moved to New York and got a little humbled and things didn't move the way I thought they would move, then I started to learn the word no. And I had to go back and remind myself, like, uh uh-uh. Remember the girl from Michigan that was inviting people to a place she hadn't even finished writing? Like, go back to her sometimes, you know? Mm.
0: I forget I all about the ask as a follow-up <laughs> question because <laughs> I'm so engulfed in your story in a good way and I'm also inspired by your story but I do want to transition just a little bit because, again, I need to kind of gather my thoughts. And I was wondering if you can talk about the end of your Michigan experience. So upon completion of your degree, did you go directly into playwriting or acting, or did you explore other careers and passions in between?
1: So let's say when I graduated Michigan, I had an idea that I was going to go to New York right away. Spike Lee was going to call me within the first two months of me being out there because he was going to have heard about my amazing talent and then the rest was going to be history. He did not work like that, not even a little bit. What happened was I stayed in Detroit for a year. I taught in Highland Park, saved all of my money, lived with my parents, saved all of my money. I moved to New York right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So uh, on 9-14, I was supposed to move to New York with my, my red friend who also graduated Michigan with me. And nine fourteen was our date, and on nine eleven I was running, trying to get ready to move, and nine eleven happened, and so we delayed our move for a month. But I still went out there, and she still went out there. So a month later, we stayed with one of our friends from Michigan who played professional ball at the time. Um, his name was Dehani Jones, and he played for the, the New York Giant at that time.
0: Yeah, yeah so, I know Dehani Jones. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Not, yeah. So. We, uh, we called the honey, like, we coming. <laughs> <laughs> we need somewhere to be for, we, we need somewhere to be while we look for this job in this apartment. I gave myself three weeks and went out there and found a job in an apartment in three weeks. And then we moved, you know, and my first year of New York was unemployed, living off my savings, trying to be an artist, hitting my head against the ground. My second year, I got a job working in educational theater. And I thought that that was going to be something I do for like a year or two. I, I, I ended up doing that work for almost 10 years in New York. And, um... I was a, you know, I was a teaching artist. I used to go into schools. I, I, that work taught me everything I know about New York City, because I taught in all five boroughs. I would get up in Brooklyn, and I had to be at the top of the Bronx early in the morning, or I had to be somewhere out in Staten Island, or somewhere in like Jamaica Queens, you know, and um, and I learned New York City eventually you know I kept auditioning kept working on things and eventually you know I did a I hundred things I guess is my point you know if you say was it a straight path to, to playwriting no I taught I was a dancer I danced for a little while I you know I wrote poems I slammed I used to make money going up to Harlem and slamming you know just to pay my bills <laughs> you know I just whatever I did everything I did everything I tried everything I directed, you know, and then about nine to 10 years in, I submitted to a theater in New York City that was looking for emerging writers. I've been in New York 10 years and I'm still emerging, you know, so I I submitted to it and I got in and I think that turned my career to another level because that theater ended up. Introducing me to so many other uh, Broadway theaters in New York. They got very excited about things I was writing there. I started winning awards. They they wanted to produce my play. And since then, my plays have been getting consistently produced in New York. And that's sort of a really rare thing for a playwright to have happen. It's hard. It's hard out here to be any artist, Um, but especially to, to be one in theater and it doesn't pay well, you know? I'm doing other things while I'm building my dreams as a writer. I'm, I'm teaching, I'm doing every other thing I can to supplement, you know, my income. But I, it's it's magic. I mean, I call it New York magic. It's just like when you're there in New York, you don't know how you're gonna pay your bills. It, the math does not add up, so don't do the math. Because <laughs> if, <you, laughs> if you go, well, I'm making this, and but it cost me this, you, it will never work out in your favor. Trust the New York magic. Go not make money. The good thing about New York City, it's a lot going on in New York. You can always make money in New York City. I'm not saying you're gonna be rich in New York City now, nah. but there's always, and New York is expensive, but there's always, because New York has so many people in so many industries that you can hustle. New York is a city to hustle in. You can make money in New York. If you're creative, if you're a hard worker, you can make money in New York and live and do your art. And so that's what I did i say in 2010, my career changed, and that's when I started to get a lot more visible as an artist. But I don't count those years before, so I moved out there in 2001. From 2001 to 2010, that wasn't time wasted. I mean, the people that I built with and the artists that I met during that time, they are the artists that are running New York City right now. We were all hustling together. You know, one of those artists, I'll tell you his name, one of those artists that worked in an educational theater company with me, we taught together, his name was Lin-Manuel Miranda. He has Hamilton on Broadway right now. Mm. Another one of those artists that I met during that, those 10 years and we did stuff together in the trenches. Her name is Camilla Forbes. She was a producer on HBO's Deaf Poetry. She now is the executive director of the Apollo Theater in New York City. So I always say, like, you know, build with the people that's around you. The people that everybody always wants to get in a room with the, the most successful person in the room, and everybody wants to get to know that successful person and have that success, that one successful, those five successful celebrities or whoever they are to pay attention to you. You don't need none of them. You need the people next to you, you know? I does not, Spike Lee actually did come calling me eventually. Mm-hmm. I have been offered a job by Spike Lee twice, actually. And I have not been able to do those jobs, not because I've been so busy with my own art. I'm not saying that I'm not honored and that Spike Lee is not, you know, the genius that he is and that, you know, it wouldn't be honored to work for him. But when you do your work for you, you don't need anyone else, bigger, or small. You don't need somebody who you perceive as bigger than you to do anything for you, but inspire you. All the people that come before me need to do is inspire me and show me how it's done. They don't need to give me nothing.
0: How has that Detroit hustle allowed you to just persevere and perfect your craft and live out your passion?
1: Yeah, you know, I'll say this. Like, I can tell you that in one story. So when I was early in living in New York, and like I said, New York is a hustle city. When I was early living in New York, I remember I wanted to see a show on Broadway. I went out, couldn't afford any of those shows. So I went out, I stood out in front of the theater and I remember this guy, one day I just happened to be out there and I saw this guy sort of like scalping tickets. And I was like, huh, I couldn't afford it that night so I didn't do it. The next night I came out to the theater. I was outside of the theater again. And um, I saw like all these rich, you know, kind of suited white folks standing out before the show started. And I saw that they're like looking for the person that they're supposed to see the show with. And they, the person didn't show up, So the, the white guy in the suit just happened to just give his ticket away to this brother out there, this black man who was sort of hustling. Now the brother didn't see me. I was just watching the whole thing from a distance. I saw that brother get those tickets for free. And then as soon as the white man went in, as soon as all those people went in, brother, everybody else that walked up to the theater, that brother tried to sell those tickets, you know? <laughs> to, mm. to the and I was looking at him like, he just got them for free, and he's about to make money off it, it's crazy. And I was thinking, I want to see that show. And I had somehow, because I was interested in the show, it was a show that most deaf and Jeffrey Wright were in, it was called Top Dog, Underdog. And so I remember I went to the theater, I looked at where the seats were. So I knew the seating chart in my head. So, them seeing his brother. He's trying to sell these tickets. So I go up to him, I said, how much you going to charge for the tickets? And he, it was, I don't know, let's say it was, a, let's say it was like 30 bucks. I was like, that's too high. And he's like, I'm going to get, that's all, I paid for these. I said, you didn't pay for those. <laughs> those are free. You got those for free. And that's too high. I'm not giving, I'll give you something because you, you know, you got your hustle, but I'm not going to give you that much, you know? And he's like, I was like, well, he's like, no, these are excellent seats. I said, where are those seats? He said that, you know, he told me something like, like, these are down front or something, you know, something really crazy. And I said, let me see. That's K. K's not down front. I know what K is. K is, like, in the middle over here on the side because I know the seating chart. Right? <laughs> so I said, I'll give you $20 <laughs> for the tickets. I said, you're making a hell of a profit because you ain't going to get nothing on them tickets. The show's about to start. Ain't nobody out here about to buy these tickets. You know, so finally he gave me for what I wanted to spend, and I remember he looked at my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, but he 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 wasn't living out in New York. He was just coming to visit me, and he turns to my my boyfriend. He says, "She must be from New York," and I said, "No, I'm from Detroit. <laughs> That's <laughs> Also a hustling city." You know, we know hustlers and I saw your entire hustle, not respect to hustle, but it's not gonna work on me. And so that's the way I feel like, that's how the Detroit Hustle has helped me in New York City. Um, You can't hustle hustlers, you know? And that's the, and it's the place where if you have a hustling spirit, it is a place that you will really do well there because it is a hustler city.
0: Wow, that is, wow. (laughs) That is one heck of a story right there. Dude tried to play you, but then you ended up telling them, you know, this is what I'm going to pay. Give me them tickets. Whoa.
1: Yeah, because I couldn't afford the real tickets. I was like, "Wow, he just got some good tickets for free." I'm gonna get them tickets for twenty because he got to make some money. I-, I respect the hustle, like you.
0: He- yeah, and I'm pretty sure your your husband or uh, boyfriend at the time he probably was supporting you the whole way. Did he say anything, or he just kind of let you just handle your business?
1: No, he he said he was watching me. Like he was stunned actually because he had never seen me <laughs> in that mode. And he's just sort of respected. He's like, "I'm gonna let you do this," you know. And I did. And he was like, "I'm." Like proud of you. <laughs> you, know? I was like, Thank you, but I think he was sunny. You never see me in that mode. He he was looking at it like, oh, she's been out here in New York. Like she's got these New York streets. Now now he and I now he's been living in New York with me. We've lived together for I don't know. I've, we've been together for twenty years. You know, mm-hmm. so we're old school with each other. But he knows the New York hustle, the Detroit hustle. He knows every hustle in every city. so, <laughs> It was interesting him watching me. Like, he was watching me figure it out or learn a new trade, in a way, on my own. And so, yeah, you know, I don't know. It was it was exciting, but no, he watched. I mean, he stood right with me, but he watched. Cause he didn't, you know, he's like, I don't believe she knows these cedar charts like this. <laughs> like, what, what has she been doing, <laughs> you know? And I just happened, it wasn't like, I'd be, I just happened, I wanted to see the show, so I just happened to know. Yeah, I just happened to know that he was full of shit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> somebody else, he could have easily been lying and it would have worked. He was a smart hustler. He just got, he got the wrong one on the wrong day.
0: I'm gonna paraphrase something cause I am in Minneapolis right now. And one of my favorite artists, Prince, he once said this quote and he was on a Tavis Smiley interview anybody that tries to play me plays themselves. <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing that pops into my head. Uh, if, you are, if you haven't checked out the interview, definitely check it out. But yeah, uh, that's the oh, first
1: I love the purple one. I love it. All oh, hell, the purple one. For
0: sure. For sure. <laughs> Going into one of the other questions, and I've been appreciating this conversation. And again, thank you so much. Now, I want to talk about your creative process as a writer. And I was wondering if you can talk about what that creative process looks like for you as a writer, including like the inspiration behind your stories and also the development of your characters.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for it, so many different ones, but are you, maybe are you interested in the Detroit cycle? So maybe the plays about Detroit or, you know, which ones do you want to say? Yeah, so yeah. Fun? I mean. The
0: is about Detroit because I remember watching an interview and you had mentioned that a portion of your characters come from either real life experiences that you had interacting with people or it's just you kind of you were just in a creative mindset.
1: Well, when it comes to like so I'll say this I decided when I wanted to write about Detroit as a playwright that I was going to tell a story about three different eras in Detroit's history because they were things that I was just really curious about. So there were just three eras in Detroit's history that I was personally interested in because I didn't know enough about. One of them was 1949, the year where Basically, we had uh, Black Bottom Detroit and Paradise Valley, which was like where we had like a jazz heyday, all this black business, you know, that was this thriving part of Detroit where black folks owned everything in their area and how that got bulldozed for urban renewal. Then the second era was 1967, which was the year of the riots or rebellion, depending on who you're talking to. But Detroiters call it the rebellion. Mm -hmm. And my play Detroit 67 is about that era. I play Paradise Blue is about the Paradise Valley era. And then the third era that I wanted to talk about was 2008 when the auto industry was on the brink of collapsing and there was a foreclosure crisis because that affected my family. So my play Skeleton Crew is about uh, a group of workers that are like a family and what happens when they find out that their factory is about to close, you know? And so those, all of those plays have all of my family and all of my like, Just they got me all up in, you know, whether it's inspired by an uncle or characters inspired by an aunt. You know, when it comes to skeleton crew, my aunt, several of my family members worked in the factory for in all different levels of the auto industry. You know, they worked on the management side. They worked on the on the floor. And when this crisis happened and when the foreclosure crisis happened, which also affected my family, I just kept wondering, like, What's going on? You know, like what they doing to what are they doing to our city? You know, and I I wanted to tell a story about who we were that the media was not telling, because I felt like you know, especially like I remember when Mitt Romney was running against Barack Obama, and he kept saying they should let Detroit go bankrupt, and I was like, hold up, yo, like I think you're picturing some kind of like executives flying jets to Washington or whatever. Like that's not what Detroit is. Detroit is like my aunt who worked in the factory. You know, who work triple overtime and in the factories, you know? Or like my aunt's uncle, <laughs> you know, like my, my great uncle who went deaf working in a stamping machine, you know? Like I, I think you just understand like who you're talking about when you're talking about some legendary who go bankrupt, because you're not understanding the face of the working class is who you're talking about. And we're not the greedy executives stealing money from the public. Like that's not that's not who we're that's not who we are. So I wanted to tell a story about who we really are. And I think my entire Detroit cycle is about telling who we really are, like not what the media has represented us as because they, they're telling half truths or complete lies about our humanity. And, um, and we know ourselves better than that. And we're, we need to be the ones to control our narrative. So that's sort of what inspires me to tell the stories the way that I tell stories about in general, but
0: especially about Detroit. Now, as a follow-up question to that response, and I appreciate you telling that narrative for people who may not be familiar with Detroit. So, follow-up question. As a writer, how important is it for you to authentically and accurately capture these stories to an audience that may not be familiar with Detroit's rich history?
1: Oh, it's super important. I mean, like, I have to do a lot of... Like, there's some things about Detroit that I just know growing up here. Like, you can't tell me who my family is. Like, I got 300 family members in Detroit. Like, I'm going to get it right just on the strength of that. You know, but I don't know every world that I'm creating in Detroit. So, like, I'm not a jazz musician. So, I had to talk to jazz musicians when I wrote Paradise Blue because that's a play about a group of jazz musicians in Paradise Valley. So, I'm like, ooh. You know, I played the piano growing up, but I don't know everything. So I had to talk to people who are the experts and, and be able to capture that world correctly. When it came to the history of the 1967 rebellion, you know, that was, I could talk to my family, my aunts and my mom and, you know, my dad, because they lived through that era. That was their era, you know? And when it comes to like telling a story about the auto industry, literally I had tons of my family members have worked, friends have worked in the auto industry, but I never did. I had to seek the wisdom and the genius of all of the Detroiters that were generous enough to tell me about their jobs, you know? But I had to do some research myself, even though I'm from here, I don't know everything. So I had to learn and do research and become a student of my own city. And that's been crazy, I mean like, it's just stuff we take for granted, like we would, you know? I mean, we just take things for granted. I did not know prior to working on Paradise Blue 10-something years ago, I didn't know that there was a mayor Cobo. Kobo. I knew that mm-hmm. there was a Kobo Hall. <laughs> and I graduated from Kobo Hall, but I didn't know nothing about that man and who Kobo who Hall was named after. And neither did some of my very smartest friends. I remember when they saw my play, they were like, oh, that's cute, like you made up a mayor in honor of Kobo Hall. And I was like, uh uh-uh, no, 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 all, all the opposite. <laughs> Cobble Hall was named after a real mayor who ran a really racist campaign to try to get rid of black people in the city of Detroit. And what's amazing is, as my play is here in Detroit now, Paradise Blue is being performed right now in Detroit, at the same time that Cobble Hall has now been renamed the TCF Center so that uh, it won't be named in honor of this racist mayor. All this time, I never knew that. You know, it's like when you live somewhere, you don't even know, like, the street you're driving on. You're not thinking, like, oh, man, this is named after a... Uh, you know, uh, a union organizer, or this is named after, like, you know, like, we know Martin Luther King in every Black community. <laughs> we know that that's named after Dr. King, but Brooklyn, I love it because they have, like, streets like Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, you know who those streets are named after, but do you know who the Ruther Freeway is named after? You know, like, do we know all of these little stories about our city? We don't, really. And, um, and, and learning, becoming a student of Detroit is sort of, like, mind-blowing. Like, I'm learning our history backwards. Like, oh, crap, like, I've been doing this my whole life. I ain't realized what I was even. I didn't realize what building I was going into all this time. And so that's um that's been amazing about telling, getting, becoming an accurate storyteller about Detroit is to learn Detroit as a student myself, but also to make sure that who we really are is reflected honestly to the rest of the world. You know, they've been telling bad stories about us. So if I want to tell, I don't even want to tell good stories about us. What is that? But I want to tell true stories about us, which means I got to get us right.
0: You know, uh, a good portion of our listening audience, young people, I don't know, like the ages, I would say between the ages of 24 and 35 or something, I mean, we have older people as well. But I say this to say that you being on this podcast is important because one, you are sort of bridging that gap and making people informed of the rich history of Detroit, both good and bad. And I want to go back to what you said. The last thing that you said is telling true stories. And I love that you are in many ways a vessel and allowing people to learn about the history through your arts and um, the work that you're doing. Now, another question, and um, I want to talk about one of your plays that was and is featured on Broadway, based on the temptation song. And I'm gonna say, Ain't Too Proud, which is the name of your play, but I'm not gonna say the actual song because I know you had spoken about that in another interview, but <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's okay. I just Everybody always calls it the Ain't Too Proud the Big because that's the name of the song. But the musical is just called Ain't Too Proud and it's about the life and times of our one and only Temptations. It's a play about the Temptations. that's on Broadway. It's a story about Detroit on Broadway right now, playing on Broadway right now. And as long as you guys keep coming to see us, we will stay on Broadway. <laughs> so keep us there is what I tell people. Come see us, bring your, bring your whole church, bring your whole community center, bring your whole family. I, I mean, all generations love the musical, but it's, it's something that I am very proud of because uh, I got to work with Otis Williams, who was the last original member and the founding member of the Temptations, And I uh, got to work with him to tell his story. And it's, it's just exciting. We're using the Temptations music, you know. Um, we have amazing men who are playing the Temptations. We're out there dancing their tails off on that stage. Everybody that comes to see the show can see how talented the cast is. And they're just, they're, the cast is so gifted, it's invigorating, you know. And yeah, but I mean, it's, it's just, it's been a joy to be able to usher our homegrown story to Broadway and be able to do it as a Detroit girl to make sure that on the great white way that they got us right.
0: And I was going to ask you, how dope is it as a native Detroiter, but most importantly, as a black woman from Detroit, to see your work in Broadway and the big lights of Broadway? How dope is that? What is that feeling like?
1: you know it's a uh, it's a dream come true it's it's magic i mean broadway i've sort of changed my mind about what broadway is you know it's currently it is supposed to be you know the highest place that you can be produced in theater and it is but it for me it, it's not the end game you know we could create our own broadway where we are you know and it's 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 still a, it's a controlled medium And I think that artists, we don't have to be restricted by those mediums, you know? It's like, if the best thing you could do is get an Oscar, who says that that's the best thing? That's what the film industry says, but what do you say? The best thing I could ever do is to serve the people that I'm writing about. And that means that when my work soars at home, not on Broadway, but when my work does well in Detroit, then I feel like I've done something, I've accomplished something. Because those are the people that I'm telling stories about. They should be the ones that matter the
0: most. Hmm. Great segue. And I mentioned earlier in this interview, your current play or your one of your works is being featured here in Minnesota. And for my Minnesota people, please check it out at the Pernumbra Theater, which is one of the only what well, is probably the only black theater in Minnesota. <laughs> but your current work pipeline is being featured there. So I was wondering if you can talk about that project and the inspiration behind it.
1: So Pipeline is one of my most important plays I've ever written. Is also being done in Cleveland right now and at the Cleveland Playhouse. And so I'm excited that it's being done at Penumbra. Penumbra has done several of my other work. They're an amazing institution. They're very important to Minneapolis and to the theater and the culture at large, you know. And I think that we have to keep supporting stuff, anything that they do there. But I hope you especially support Pipeline because this was inspired for me about the school-to-prison pipeline. It is directly looking at the impact of public education and private education on, on our bodies and what happens happens when basically a mother, a single mother who teaches at a public school, but her teenage son goes to a private school. And when he gets in an incident, a controversial incident at his school, he's threatened with expulsion and criminal charges. And she has to try to figure out what she's going to do to help save him from the school to prison pipeline. And it basically looks at you know, parenting, mothers and fathers. It looks at teachers and everybody's role, and it looks at young people and their role over themselves. This is my play that young people love because the characters, teenage characters in the story that just feel like who they are, you know? But it's also a play for mothers and fathers, for educators, for everybody that cares about young people in this country and wanna see them stop going into the system of mass incarceration, you know? i read Uh, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. And that was part of what inspired me to start telling this kind of story. Uh, Because as I was reading about mass incarceration, I was also learning like, man, you know, the other part of The New Jim Crow to me is in the education system where it's very segregated and it's very divided and it's a system of have and have nots and just, that's not cool. You know, we want to see all young people thrive and it's very biased. And so this is my play where I'm really jumping into that and addressing it in a really personal way and um it's it's just impacted people in ways that none of my other work ever has and my work has done great but it hasn't done what pipeline is doing pipeline is is special
0: why do you feel that young people are so drawn to this play as opposed to your previous works if you don't mind me asking
1: I think it's because of just the teenage characters in this play. I mean, they, they're they they're real. I mean, I have, I have like Sunset Baby is another play of mine that young people like. I think it's just because young people like to see themselves. Like, everybody likes to see themselves. And my other plays are exciting. They have things that young people like, too. But Pipeline is all about them. And they get to say what they feel. And it's also a play, I think, that is not... Preachy and it doesn't, um, I'm not trying to tell anybody how to think. So this is also a play where young people kind of get their words said. They get to have their say, you know, and speak about how they feel about the world and how they feel about some of the inconsistencies that adults bring into their lives, you know. So they get to kind of, they get to say what they feel about being young people, just like the, uh, the adults in the play get to say what they feel about being, you know, stressed out as adults trying to take care of young folks. So it's sort of, it's just a, it's a conversation that I don't think a lot of other work is having, and it's not allowing young people to say the kind of things that they're saying in this play. They come to the play, they be snapping. I mean, they, they get all their feelings. They get their whole lives, you feel me? <laughs> and it's just, I love to see them get their whole lives. But mothers get their whole lives, fathers get their whole lives, everybody gets their whole lives in this play. Because I think it's just speaking to something that is the most current and present issue that we are facing right now together as a, as a country. And it's, and it's the kind of thing we're facing Yes, it's, it's the kind of thing that black parents are facing because black and brown kids are the highest in incarcerated. But it's also like trying to raise teenagers and trying to understand them. That's a crisis everybody's having across all backgrounds. So it just it speaks to so many people. And I think that that's why it's, it's fun so far. It's one of my most produced plays.
0: For sure. And again, my Minnesota people, please check it out at the Pernumbers Theater. I think it runs until early November. They just extended it. So make sure that you check it out. So I want to pivot back over to the trade. and I do want to be respectful of time. I do have a couple of last minute questions I want to ask you. And one of those questions is, and I probably should have given you this question ahead of time. I'm kicking myself for not doing this. Hopefully we can think on our feet, but one of our segments on the podcast is I often ask our guests a song that best represents Detroit in their opinion. I know you love music. I've listened to some of your interviews. I've watched some of your interviews. And of course, you made a play about the Temptation song. But in your opinion, and I'm posing it to you, if you had to identify a song that best represents Detroit, in your opinion, what would that song be?
1: You know what? I'm going to say a song that maybe everybody doesn't know, but they should. They should get to know. It's a song called Lost Detroit. It's not, so there's two versions of this. There's there's the original, which is Gil Scott Heron. And then there's my husband, Jay Keys, who's a hip hop artist, is his version, which is a remix. And uh, it's called Lost Detroit by Jay Keys, K U Y S. And it it is my personal Detroit anthem. And I think that it sums up. I've used it in my show, Skeleton Crew. He composed it, you know, music for my show and his song. It just speaks to everything that my generation in Detroit, the generation I think you and I are part of, that we coming up in the city that we feel about our city. You know, And that's that's one for me. It's, it's local, it's, it's underground. That's, that's mm-hmm. the, the song that I feel best represents Detroit for
0: me. Appreciate that response. Appreciate that response. Now, Another question I want to ask you, and again, we're kind of heading into the home stretch. You're working on a lot of things. You've got a lot of projects out there, but what are you currently working on and how can we best support you as a community?
1: So you know, show up, show up for my work. If you can't get to New York to see The Temptations on Broadway, tell people because they'll go. You know, send people to the work. We don't stay alive if you don't come. So it, you, we need you. All I can say is we need you. You're our lifeline. Come see us. Come if you want to make sure that we keep having work to get done. You have we have to show up for each other. And I know that's easier said than done. People are like, yeah, girl, I'm gonna come see the play, and they never come. And I get it. Life is hard, but. Just know it's not just, you're not just doing a community service act. You're going to get something when you come. It's going to fulfill you. You're going to be happy you came. So show up for us. So for me, you can show up, you know, if you want to come to New York to see Ain't Too Proud on Broadway or send some people to that, that would really be awesome. If you can't get to New York, come see my work in Detroit right here in our backyard at the Detroit Public Theater. They produce one of my plays every year, every season. So please come down to Detroit Public Theater and see my play, Paradise Blue, that's running until November 3rd. Or go to Penumbra if you're in Minneapolis and go see Pipeline. But show up. That's how you can help keep me going. I'm, I'm also working on some Detroit stories for television. You know, I'm partnering with other Detroit artists. So when we create stuff, watch it. Watch it on TV. You know, know that it's is made for you because it's it's from Detroit, by Detroit, for Detroit. So that's what we can do to keep each other going, and that's what you can do to help me stay alive.
0: For sure, we'll make sure we'll make sure. I know I personally will make sure that the word is spread about what you're doing. And again, my Minnesota people, please check out Pipeline at the Penumbra Theater. And for my people in the D, check out Paradise Valley, all of the Paradise Blue, excuse me, check out that. And if you in the NYC, check that out. That's a good reason for me to go to the NYC. So I might have to get a plane ticket for that and check out the Temptation play that you were doing. We Um, are rocking
1: always, so please do, (laughs) please do. We are setting it on fire.
0: Hey, I got to, it's black, it's it's Detroit. Gotta support it, gotta support it. So, Dominique, where can people find you in the social media space?
1: You can find me on Instagram at DOMoriso. D O M O R I S S E A U. Uh, at DOMoriso. You can also find me on Facebook, on Twitter. Same handles, and uh, or you can go to dominymariso.com. I have a website, um, so that's where I am. But please find me on IG. I always post about the work that I'm doing on Facebook and everything, so you can find ways to support
0: for sure. And I have followed you on there. I see that you have posted this is a while ago some things about the uh, soul train and posting with the one and only Amir Questlove Thompson who loves soul train. And yes, uh, big fa- <laughs> I'm a big fan of his, so that was dope to see you kind of come together. Last question I want to ask you before we kind of wrap up again. This has been great. Speechless. I'm happy. Thank you for coming on here. I can't express that enough. But last question I want to ask you, and that question is, what does Detroit mean to you?
1: Oh, Detroit is family, it's strength, it's resilience, it's intelligence, it's hustle, and it's power. It's Black empowerment. And it is a
0: metaphor for the entire nation. Mm. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Dominique Marizo <laughs> right. thank you so much for coming on here. Again, I appreciate you as a, a trader, as a proud trader, somebody was born and raised in the city. I love seeing what you're doing. The fact that thank you God. have a play on Broadway based on The Temptations, that is dope. The fact that you have a play in Minnesota where I'm at, That's That's also dope, (laughs) but also the fact that you proudly represent the trade in a way that is beautiful in a way that is authentic. And you are in many ways bridging the gap and giving that historical perspective, that historical beauty. So thank you so much again. Many blessings to you. Keep up the fantastic work. I am deeply proud of you and keep doing what you're doing. That's all I got to say. Thank you, Marquis. Thank you
1: for having me on your show.
0: For sure, for sure. So, this is Detroit Worldwide. Thank you all so much for listening. On behalf of myself, on behalf of the one and only Dominique Moriso, this is Detroit Worldwide. We will holler at y'all on the other side. Peace.